Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome to the class on Romans, and today we're dealing with chapter 7, a key chapter in the transition that Paul is making, I think, in the book that this is the culmination of his argument talking about the universal nature of sin. And he's already described then how all are in some way under the law subject to death. And so he's going to in this chapter describe exactly what the role of the law is and how sin and the law interact. And of course, key issues in this chapter are who is the I that suddenly Paul will use I about 20 times in chapter 7. And so the various theories are that he's playing the role of Adam. In Genesis, when man falls, that the first sentence that Adam speaks is, I was afraid, I ran, I hid, I was naked. And so in one sentence, he uses the I four times there. And it is the first time in Genesis that I appears. And in Romans, likewise, that there is no I prior to this. And it just it's an interesting comparison between chapter 7 and 8, especially in 7, 7, all the things that are missing in those verses and what's present in chapter 8, that there's no Holy Spirit, that God the Father is really absent, there's no prayer. Uh, you can just go right on through. There's no desire. But most prominently, the I disappears in that what you find in chapter 8 is the corporate we. Paul in Galatians, obviously, is going to talk about the death of this I. So one of the ideas is that the I is, in fact, Adam, but it's Paul, and that's an argument. To my mind, that's not a separate argument. But then the question is, is it Paul before he's a Christian, or is it Paul as a Christian? And of course, this divides up how people read chapter 7 as to their theology, that many Calvinists are going to read chapter 7 as if the I is the Christian I, and that this is the struggle that every Christian goes through, which is not to say that as Christians we may not have an experience like that described in chapter 7, but the point is that this is not the ideal Christian experience, but he's talking about himself before he was a Christian from the viewpoint of one who is a Christian. The point here is that as a good Jew, he would not have recognized this about himself. And so Paul will describe his, his self-awareness very differently in other places that he will call himself blameless in regard to the law. It may be that Christianity opens up a consciousness about the self that was not there previously. Part of this is what is the, the key problem? Is the problem the law? Well, it's not precisely the law, because the law, Paul says, is holy, just, and good. But it is one's orientation to the law because of sin. Sin deceived me, Paul says. That deception, then, in regard to the law, creates the orientation that is definitive of sin. And the way that death is mixed in is to get the understanding of what that orientation is. 
if you go back to Genesis, the serpent says you will not die. Paul is picturing the law, and this is not just Paul, this is what we think uh, Hebrew understanding was, that the deception is to imagine there is life in the law. That's not truth, that's a lie. That's a misunderstanding. There will be differences of opinion. Is Paul simply following Genesis 3 here, giving us a commentary on Adam? And T. Wright thinks it's both Genesis 3 and the giving of the law to the Jews in Exodus. It could be both that what happens with the Jews is a kind of repetition of what happens in Genesis 3, and the Jews themselves will talk about the prohibition in Genesis as a kind of proleptic, or that in some way the Torah itself was contained in that original prohibition. And certainly the orientation that you get of the Jews in the law is simply illustrative of the universal predicament. That's Paul's picture of the law. The conclusion here is that we can say that this is a picture of a universal picture of the human predicament. This would not exclude Paul, it would include Paul. Interesting studies have been done, you know, when Paul uses the term I, is he referring to himself? And the idea is, well, he always is in some way. He wouldn't use that language if he weren't. To say that he is recognizing something about his non-Christian life from a Christian perspective is to say that there is an unconscious aspect to human identity outside of Christ that is brought into consciousness. This sounds like a kind of obscure point, but the point is that revelation then is a revelation in part about the reality of who we are, and that's opened up to us in Christ due to a deception. This is the very nature of a deception. And think here of a self-deception that we're deceived about our own identity due to our identity. That is, that we are the ones propagating this lie. And so there is an unconscious self in all of this. And of course, this is my own work in psychoanalysis, is this is precisely what Freud is depicting about the nature of the unconscious. And so the law is the problem in a sense, but it is the combination of the law and the deception which constitutes sin. So the law is not what needs to be getting, gotten rid of, and that's the huge mistake that is made. And God himself is pictured as in some way having to work within the parameters of the law. That's not the point at all, but the point of salvation is to get rid of sin, which is brought out, exposed in, in and through the law. You know, we've already talked about in chapter 5 that there are two kinds of humanity. And maybe in this chapter, then we see we're going inward. You know, chapter 5 was the broad view and exterior view. Here we're going into deep interiority. In verses 1 to 6, we can see the inward aspect of what it's like to be in Christ or what's required to be in Christ. And then 7-7 to the end of the chapter is a picture of the deep interiority, the deep psychology of what it is to be in Adam, which is the human condition. If this reading is correct, then we can understand salvation as over and against the picture of this is going to set up the contrast with chapter 8, that there's a creation of a new kind of humanity. When we talk about the I as transgressive, it can be transgressive in two senses, and that is that it can be imagining, but 
that it to transgress the law is to in some way access the reality that God is holding out. You know, if you think here in Genesis, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that tree is in some way the forbidden tree, and then there's the tree of life, which is in no way forbidden. But it seems like, you know, the prohibition is screening out a reality that they would access. So when we talk about the law, we have to understand the law as it's viewed from a sinful position. If you want to get at this in Genesis, it's the, the satanic version of the law or the serpent's version of the law is that God is in some way, in the serpent's view, holding out on you that you won't die. You'll be like God if you partake of this transgressive relationship to the law. So that's one understanding, but understand that law-keeping then is itself already transgressive in that it imagines that there's life in the law, and if the law then is the law of the knowledge of good and evil, there can be a kind of zeal for that. Once this is understood that there's this law, and there, actually there's two laws at work throughout this, this explains the split in the eye, that the law of the mind and the law in my members are pitted against one another. This is not who one really is. This is a, a false identity that in 1 to 6, Paul pictures the, the one who would die. And it's a very interesting illustration in 1 to 6 that the woman whose husband, you know, whether he's alive or dead, the, the point is that the husband there is representative of the law. But then Paul has the Christians in the place of one who has died, that is taking the place occupied formerly by the husband, is now occupied by those who have died, which is not a departure from the law. In other words, it's to occupy the place that the law occupied, which is in Christ. That is, there's something bigger than the law. There is the lawgiver. And so you can picture Galatians, you know, 2, 19 to 20, where Paul says, I've died and I no longer live, but it's Christ that lives within me. There is the sense that verses 1 to 6 describe then that process, that there is a suspension of the law, not an abolition, but the law is no longer binding in the sense that it's binding in sin as a force for death. And so the death of the eye is a relinquishing of this sinful orientation to the law, which is characterized by desire. And maybe in articulating all of this, as we're thinking in our psychoanalytic terms, we can't really articulate our problem or our predicament. We just experience it. And the way we experience it in this is through desire or covetousness. And of course, what is desired in both Genesis and in Paul's depiction is life itself. There is the, the notion that you can have a, a life, be like God, knowing good and evil, or that you have access to life apart from God. Gaining life through the commandment is the problem. And if we think of the commandment here, the prohibition, we all can take on that kind of relationship to authority structures, imagining that there's life in whatever authority it is, maybe nationalism, maybe some form of idolatrous religion, uh, maybe the family. In other words, anything can function in place of this symbolic authority. The main problem, and we've already discussed this in chapter four, is that you know if we take Abraham as the key to this whole thing, that 
Abraham's faith, faith in whom, is the question, not faith in what. Abraham has faith in God, and the law then is added subsequent to that faith. So to have faith in the law is already to miss the point or to imagine that the law is an end in itself is the problem. This would distort the meaning of the law, and this is what sin does. So Paul says, well, the law is holy, just, and good. There's nothing wrong with the law, but it's what sin would do with the law. You can talk about a kind of zeal, a zealousness. Think of the, you know, Paul as, a, as a, having a zeal, but not knowledge. And, of course, the zeal is to establish the law as a kind of end in itself. If you think of it as the human law, you know, that's really what's happening with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The law no longer, if you think of that as a law, it no longer refers outside of itself. It's just self-referential. It's just a circulating system of signs. And so in that, the good is known through the evil, the evil through the good. And this gets at the perverse picture that, you know, shall we sin that grace may abound is the law of sin. In, in a sense that in the perverse understanding, that is the reality, that the two pairs, you know, good and evil, are interdependent. To establish the good is not something over and against the evil. And doing evil may be a means of establishing the good. That sounds perverse, but think of the necessity that people attach to doing evil. They imagine they must do violence or they must do harm in order to accomplish the good. That is precisely a picture of the human law, the human predicament. Paul describes this as not just something out there. This is the split that's within. That evil is in me, the one who wants to do good, the good. And you could say this in a different way. Where the law is sin, well, then sin will establish the law, the law of sin. And that's what he calls it, the law of sin and death. It's not just that this is a law that's out there. This is descriptive of the split, or this is descriptive of one's identity, that one is pitted against himself in this law of good and evil, that it is a law that he says, the good I, that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So it creates this agonistic struggle. Think not here of a, a deep psychology in, in the sense that one is aware of it, but this is a, a picture of an identity that one is not aware of. He pictures two laws, and maybe we could say the law of the mind there is the law as you know, God gave it, but certainly the law in my members is this other law, the law of sin and death. The, the nature of this law is it gives rise to a kind of exponential desire, and it undoes human will. That is, there's no longer the capacity to carry out what one wills to do. We don't want to put will front and center. That's what happens in theology, as in Anselm and, and others. They're going to put the problem in the will. The entire dynamic can be uh, attributed to sin, what Paul will call the law of sin. And of course, the law of sin is not God's law. And this is the argument I think is obvious that most commentators recognize. The very idea that life is to be had in the law is the problem of sin. That's not the correct understanding. And this positing of life directly in the law is the deception. That's, think, of the deception in the garden, but that's the deception that 
occurs. You know, the Hebrew people imagine that law-keeping in some way is life-giving. You know, what's the, the problem here is that uh, law keeps one, think here of Abraham, even in Genesis, that the law keeps one in a life-giving relationship with God. If you obey the law, the point is it's not an end in itself, but it gives you access to God. It gives you access to the tree of life. It's in this. It's in this uh, uh, creating a gap here. The command which promised life. How do we read that? Well, it promised life not in and of itself. It promised life through God. And the Jewish problem is to imagine that the command is, they've equated that. This is the reading throughout chapter 7 that is undone in chapter 8 when the, Paul cries out, Abba, Father, that God is brought back into the picture. And so God is the true source of life. And the law is a step removed from life. It's to promote observance that would lead to blessing. But the blessing comes from God. As with the serpent there, the, the picture is that there's something beyond the law. There is the capacity to uh, for life and knowledge. The idea that in some way you'll be like God. This is why I think we can refer to it as a kind of death denial. But understand that we probably don't experience it in that way, but the way, way we experience it is through something that's a, a layer over that. I think this death denial is, in fact, unconscious. The serpent's lie negates death, but then the negation is under a supposed truth. You'll be like gods. And so if we picture the human project, you know, whether it's society building, career building, whatever it is, that it is again, this pursuit, this desire that is a direct experience of a deception. So I don't think we go around saying, oh, I won't die. But maybe our experience is a striving for life in and through our own terms. We could say that there is a kind of presumption here, maybe an unconscious presumption, that life is to be had in the law through some sort of achievement, what we might call a spiritual achievement. So death denied may get at it, but it's actually the promise held out, I think, in the nature of desire. There's something lacking within ourselves, and that already is a sign. You know, desire is, in this instance, not to say that this is characteristic of all desire, but this sinful desire is one in which something is lacking, and then there is a striving to fulfill the lack. And so this lack or absence you know, was there really a lack? Well, that's the argument here, because the point is that what they are in pursuit of, to be like God, is a pursuit of something that is an impossibility, to have life in themselves, to have knowledge in themselves. If you think of it here in throughout chapter 7, that what is I is the word ego or ego. The thing that one is in pursuit of is the eye itself. Think of the idol. The idol is the image that one is in pursuit of. Well, if you're in pursuit of yourself, you're in pursuit of the eye, that means that you're lacking it. You know, you can say this in, in many ways, that you lack life, you lack yourself, you lack knowledge. And so desire is this exponential desire for that which is impossible. This is why this is a dead eye. This is a, a kind of living death that is telling this entire story. 
here's the way this dynamic of death functions, that one is in pursuit of the self. You know, I lack being or I lack life or I lack, there's something lacking, whether to even articulate it, maybe to say more than the desire tells us, but we lack and we try to quench this desire, this lack. And of course, that's the more we pursue that, the more we feel that the, the we've missed it in some way. And so that is death. That is the, the picture there of the self-consumptive desire. And so sin became alive when this dynamic came about. This is, you know, I died. Not that Adam literally dropped dead or that Paul literally dropped dead or that we literally dropped dead, that we've taken death up into ourselves, And so death here clearly is not just mortality or passing away at the end of our life. As Paul describes it, who will set me free from this body of death, from this dynamic? And of course, he introduces Christ at that point, that it's precisely this dynamic that Christ has come to undo, to undo the sin that was affecting my death. This is the sense that desire, lack, which we might equate with the deception, the deception regarding law and death, this controls us. Think back to chapter 5, you know, death reigns, but of course the problem is then we become oriented. Sinful orientation is to take this death up. I am no longer the one doing it. I'm no longer in control, Paul is saying, that sin did it. He's not saying I'm not responsible. He's just saying that my will or my capacities are some way no longer under my own volition, own power. This destructive force, this deception, becomes the force of gravity at the center of the person that death then characterizes the person. And, you know, it's not just this dynamic, an agonistic dynamic in the self. Then this, as Paul has described it in chapter 3, it flows out in a life of violence. Deceived may be the key, and this is what Don and others, many have noticed that whenever, and it's not just Paul, I think that whenever sin is talked about, the nature of this sin is always a deception. This is ironically what often gets left out of many pictures of what Christ has done. Who is Christ? Well, Christ is the truth over and against this deception, over and against this deceived desire, over this what is basic to human experience. What sin's deceit has done is that to imagine that he will gain life. This is actually Rudolf Bultmann is very insightful here. This is the very nature, you know, if we go back and think of what Paul means by soma and sarks and flesh, we might describe this entire dynamic as the flesh. The flesh has taken on a life of its own. The flesh has a desire of its own, and this is what it consists of. So desire is the force of sin that has produced in me coveting of every kind coveting, desire. Desire for what? Well, the dynamic there, desire for life, desire for knowledge, desire for being, but always not through God, but in fact as a departure from knowing God. To say you desire it means it's not there. It's, it's you're in pursuit of something that you do not have. This is, you know, the desire, if you wanted to put it at the most existential point, it's being, that we lack being, we lack substance in some way. And so this gets at that if we talk about the two laws, this dynamic is the other law that is at work. 
So this is chapter seven, and then chapter seven, I hope that one will not read this as the normal Christian life, because what is pictured in chapter eight is quite glorious in comparison to chapter seven. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.